So we're in 1 Peter tonight. We're going to finish chapter 3 on our journey through 1 Peter. As I said, the title of the study is Victory in Persecution. Let's pray. Father, thanks so much once again, Lord, for uh, just giving us a chance to get into your word. We thank you that, Lord, your word is living and powerful and that it's sharper than any two-edged sword. Lord, it's able to divide between the soul and the spirit. Lord, we pray that you would do that work, Lord, tonight by your spirit, that you would teach us, that you would grow us, that you would change us. Persecution, Lord, is not something that we look forward to or even want. But nevertheless, Lord, as, as we see in your word, it's to be expected as we walk godly lives. And so, Lord, we want to learn your word, Lord, so we can not be caught off guard, Lord, but we can glorify you in the midst of it, Lord, if it comes. And so, Lord, speak to us and teach us in Jesus' name. Amen. So are you a person that reads and memorizes the promises of God? If you do, then you should take note of the following passages and memorize them as well. Matthew 5, 11 through 12. Here's what Matthew said in his gospel. Jesus said, blessed are you when they revile and persecute you and say all kinds of evil against you falsely for my sake. Rejoice and be exceedingly glad for great is your reward in heaven. For so they persecuted the prophets who were before you. Also, Jesus said in John 15, 20, Remember the word that I said to you. A servant is not greater than his master. If they persecuted me, they will also persecute you. And one more, 2 Timothy three twelve. Yes, and all who desire to live godly in Christ, Jesus will suffer persecution. There's a lot more promises that we can refer to, but I think, I think you get the point. The believer is given the promise that as we walk through this world, we're gonna receive persecution for Jesus Christ, just as Jesus did. Now, while this is so, we're not left without hope. We have hope, and as we see that in God's word, we have the promise that God will never leave us or forsake us. Remember Daniel's three friends? They're the, the king, you know, he built that mighty statue and said, if anyone doesn't you know, bow down to this statue, you know, or bow down to me, I'm gonna throw them in the fiery furnace. And the guy said, well, we're not gonna bow down to you. You know, and even if you wanna kill us, we're still not gonna bow down to you. And so what did the king do? He threw them in the fiery furnace, and while they were in there, he looked down, and there he saw Jesus with Daniel's three friends, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. And so, you know, if the Lord puts us through the fire, he'll be with us in it. He'll walk with us, he'll, he'll, he'll commune with us, he'll give us the strength to, to go through it. The believer has the indwelling Holy Spirit to enable us to stand strong and allow God to complete his perfect work. And God at times does allow persecution to come specifically for doing his perfect work. James takes this up in his epistle. As we get into uh, chapter four, we'll see some more talk about God working through our lives and refining us through persecution. You know, from a human standpoint, we think, if I'm gonna grow, I need to be in luxury have a lot of time to read, right? And, just, and, and the Lord says, well, I'm God. I know all things from the beginning and the end, and this is how I'm gonna allow you to grow, and this is an effective way. God allows us to be persecuted. But while we're being persecuted, the Lord gives us the power of his spirit. By his grace, we're able to stand and allow God to complete that perfect work. Now, there's one more thing, and we're gonna focus on that tonight, and that's the word gives us wisdom to walk in persecution. We're not left by ourselves. We're not left on our own to try to figure out 
you know, what to do. Pastor Gene's mentioned this before, and, and um, some of you in the military, you know, I mean, the military, they train a lot. The police, they train a lot for different situations. I mean, when you go out to the base, you know, they fly circles. I'm like, what's going on out there? Well, they have a carrier deck out there, and they have to land on that thing so many times, and so it's, it's ingrained in them. It's taught to them, so when something like that happens, they know how to react. They, they know what to do. And the same thing for you and I as we work our way through the scriptures, the Lord teaches us. It's through the patience and comfort of the scriptures that we have hope. It's in the scriptures that we find our anchor and find our hope and, and learn to be effective even in the midst of persecution. And Peter takes that up here and he gives us a perfect example, kind of a living example here. He writes to these believers who are in the midst of persecution and he says, hey guys, let me teach you something here. And he teaches them two things. And those two things that we'll learn are number one, Keep a biblical mindset. And number two, remember that Christ is our example. So first, in verses 13 through 17, we learn that we're to keep a biblical mindset. Now, as we work through these verses, we're gonna kind of see a couple subpoints as we work through these couple verses, and we're gonna learn what it is to actually have a biblical mindset. And so first, in verse 13, we see that the believer is to be characterized by good works. In uh, verse 13, it says, and who is he who will harm you if, you if you become followers of what is good? Now, I agree with Peter. Why would anyone want to harm you for becoming followers of what is good? Now, what is good? Well, Jesus tells us what that is. That man came up to him and said, good teacher, what good thing must I do that I'm inherit the kingdom of heaven? Jesus says, well, why do you call me good? No one is good but God. Now, people take that and they think, well, wait, is Jesus saying that he's not God? Well, no, he's not saying that at all. He's saying that the man is recognizing something within himself. When you see me, you see the Father. He recognized that Jesus is good. And so that which is good is God. So in other words, as we walk with God, we walk in what is good. As we walk in his word, as we obey his commandments. Now, when you think about it, it's really crazy, to be more accurate, satanic, for people to persecute us as we grow in God. Think about it, here we are tonight. We're learning about walking in holiness. We wanna live separated lives, good lives, to you know, raise our children in the Lord, to, to you know, be separated for God. We're learning about submitting to the government, submitting to our bosses, submitting to one another in marriage. We're talking about walking in love, and the world looks at that and says, that's, that's crazy stuff, you know, and they get all mad. And think about it, why would anybody wanna persecute a Christian? It's really, it's satanic. Now, some commentators understand this verse also to be an encouragement. So in other words, they say that Peter is saying that if you follow what is good, people can hurt you, but they can never really harm you. And the reason is, is because the worst that someone can do is kill us. You know, and, and it was, even though someone kills us, we're gonna go to heaven to be with the Lord. And that's why Jesus says, hey, don't fear man who can kill the body, but you need to fear God who can kill both the body and throw you in hell, and so we're to fear God. And so yes, it's, it's a crazy thing to think about someone persecuting us for good, and as we walk in good, you know, we'll glorify God, but as we learn here, sometimes people will persecute us for doing good, and that's what we learn in verse 14. But even in that time, we need to remember that as we suffer for righteousness, it brings a blessing. But even if you should suffer for righteousness' sake, you're blessed. And do not be afraid of their threats, nor be troubled. So let's say for some satanic reason you do suffer for righteousness' sake. Peter said, don't be discouraged. Don't let it bum you out. Just remember that as you glorify God through it, you're gonna be blessed. 
Now, in what way does persecution bring blessing? Well, here's a couple ways that we can learn. Jesus, in that passage that I read in Matthew 5, 11 12, he actually used the same word as blessed as Peter. Jesus says that we're blessed, why? Because as we suffer for righteousness sake, we're gonna be rewarded from our Father in heaven. We're gonna be rewarded for it. So if you think that you know, you're, you're not gonna be one of those people who receives rewards, well then just go out and just start getting persecuted a lot, right? And you're, you're gonna build them up. No, I mean, so just remember that, hey man, these people are persecuting me right now for being a Christian, well, that's okay. I'm being rewarded right now in heaven. It's, it's, it's giving me some good payback, you know? Second, we're blessed in suffering because it shows that we're actually living for Jesus. First John 3.13 says, do not marvel when the world hates us. We shouldn't marvel. Why? Because the world hated Jesus, and he was good. Jesus was the greatest man who ever lived. He forgave sins. He gave people new life. He fed the poor. He healed all who came to him. He lived a, a good life. But yet, as people looked at Jesus, they said, we want to kill him. And they wanted to persecute him. They wanted to kill him. And as we walk with Jesus, as we share in his example, the world is gonna seek to do the same for us. So, but, but it does show that we're living for Jesus and like Jesus. Third, we're blessed because God is able to use our suffering for his glory. Romans eight twenty eight. right? God works all things together for good for those who love God and are called according to his purpose. God is to work all those things together for good. James, as I said, reminds us to be patient in our suffering because God does our perfect work. James says, look at the prophets who were before you. Look at Job. They are blessed who endured because God, as he put them through the fiery furnace, he was able to refine their lives and, and bring forth patience and, and truth from their life. Fourth, we're blessed because God is able to use our suffering to be both a light and a witness to others. And that's what we see here in verse 15. We're given opportunities to witness for Christ. But sanctify the Lord God in your hearts and always be ready to give a defense to everyone who asks you a reason for the hope that is in you with meekness and fear. To sanctify the Lord God in your heart means to have your heart and your life set apart for the Lord. It means to have your heart, the center of your spiritual being, set apart for God's use in his alone. When Jesus talked about the heart, he said it's from the heart that comes all these wicked things. Well, in the same way as we set our heart apart for the Lord, that means our heart is set apart for, for truth and, and for the Lord. Now, when we live for the Lord like this, we're gonna receive persecution. And that's what um, Peter takes up here. Now, as we're in persecution, people are gonna look at us and they're gonna ask some questions. Well, why are you going through this? Why are you suffering for this? They're gonna ask questions to us. And these questions will actually give us a chance to give a defense. We're gonna be able to respond back to what they're saying. They're like, so what's going on? I'm like, well, let me tell you for a second why I'm choosing to, to go through this. Now, Peter calls this word a defense. Be ready to give a defense. And the Greek word for defense, most of you probably know, is the Greek word apologia, which is a legal term. It was a legal term that was used um, to refer to a verbal defense. Now, as you and I, as believers, as we walk, we're to be ready because people are gonna look at our lives and they're gonna wanna know why and we have a chance to give a verbal defense on why we live for, you know, for why we live, basically. It's, it's the hope that's in us. That's what he says here, the hope. People are gonna ask us about the hope that is within us and that hope, as we learned in chapter one, is our incorruptible inheritance that's in heaven for us. 
And so, yes, we're born again. We're, we're set apart for the Lord. We're living for this inheritance in, in heaven. And people are going to see that. They're going to persecute us. And we have a chance to tell them about it. Basically, in a nutshell, you get to share the gospel. And that's what the defense is. So as you're set apart, you're, you're being persecuted, it gives you a chance to share the Lord. Every Christian should know what the gospel is and how, the, and how to share the gospel. It is our defense, and we're to always be ready to share it. Now, you might not know the gospel, or you might not be able to put it in a couple terms, but here it is. And so grab a hold of this, and if you're not saved, believe this tonight. So here it is, ready? You're a sinner. Christ died on the cross for your sins, and then he rose again on the third day. If you'll turn from your sins and put your faith in Jesus, you will be saved. It's that simple. It's that simple. So we think apologetics. Oh man, what do I need to do to, to, to give a defense for my faith? Peter says, share the gospel. <laughs> Tell them about this incorruptible salvation you have. The fact that if people will turn from their sin and believe on Jesus, they will be saved. Now yes, there is a whole system of theology that is based around this one verse and many others as well. And that system of theology, apologetics, focuses on how to defend the gospel and the other essential doctrines which make the gospel possible um, against different outside attacks that come. And so people will try to come with a false teaching to deny who Jesus is. Well, that denies the gospel. The gospel is no longer possible then if we don't have a Jesus who's God. And so apologetics attacks that teaching and defends the true Christian faith and then also gives an offense for why um, it's not true. But in a very simple terms, what, what Peter's talking about here, he's talking about the gospel. People are gonna come to you, they're gonna wanna know why you live you know, for, for what you live for, and you say, well, here it is, because I believe in Jesus, and you can also. Now, there's an attitude that should come behind our witness, and our attitude should be in meekness and in fear. Meekness means a spirit of gentleness. We're not to be angry or militant, but we're to speak the truth in love. Get all fired up, right? Well, let me tell you why, kind of thing. And I'll choke you into it, kind of thing. No, you know, I, I, I can win this argument, kind of thing. You know, but no, but we're to do it in love. You know, we're, and we're to speak in love. We're to come off with a spirit of, of gentleness as we share the Lord with them. Also, in fear, and fear can be translated reverence or respect. And so we're gonna remember that as we share the gospel, as we share the word, that we're actually sharing God's word, not our own opinion. We're to do so with reverence. But also, as we talk to the person, we're to do so with respect. You know, we're to respect the person, obviously, and that doesn't mean that we say that everything they believe is true or anything, but we're to allow them to speak and, you know, um, you know respect who they are and then share the gospel with them. Now, in verses 16 through 17, we see that we're to have a good conscience and know that we're in the will of God as we experience persecution. Verse 16, having a good conscience that when they defame you as evildoers, those who revile your good conduct in Christ may be ashamed. For it is better if it is the will of God to suffer for doing good than for doing evil. Conscience, what is conscience? Is it the two little people on your shoulder kind of thing? Conscience is the internal faculty that helps you judge yourself. Your conscience either approves or accuses you. It's that little goad, right? The believer needs to have a good conscience, and the reason is because people are gonna try to accuse you of wrongdoing. They're gonna try to make things up. But as we walk in truth, 
as we know we're living with a good conscience, in the end they're gonna be ashamed and not us. So as we walk in truth, we need to be above reproach. We need to be blameless. And the way that we do that is by, first of all, having our conscience trained by the Spirit of God and the Word of God. Conscience is not a perfect guide. And the reason is is because our conscience needs to be trained by the Holy Spirit, by the Lord. Sometimes our conscience can condemn us for a lot of things. You know, some people have a real sensitive conscience where they you know, feel condemned over everything. You know, but, but the way our conscience is trained is by getting in the Word of God, learning the Word of God, and then we know what is truth. We're able to discern you know, what is from the Lord and what is not from the Lord. And then you know, obviously it takes faith a lot of times too as we seek to yield to the leading and, and, and work of the Spirit as he works on our conscience. But nevertheless, it's, it's to be trained. We know what's good, we know what's evil. And as we walk with the Lord, the Spirit will prick our conscience and that will help us to obey what is right. In the end, as Peter says here, it's better to suffer for doing good in God because we're gonna be blessed. And, and it's also gonna give a witness to the Lord. Now notice that Peter says here, if it's the will of God. So it is possible to suffer persecution in the will of God. Often we think, well, wait a second, if it's the will of God, right, I can't suffer. Well, that's not what the Bible teaches. Think about Joseph. He's a, a case in point, you know. Joseph was in the will of God, and God allowed him to suffer for persecution, even for doing good things, even for doing righteous things. But in the end, Joseph was able to say, hey, you guys meant it for evil, but God meant it for good. And in the end, you know, the Lord was able to bring his good and, and his glory out of it. So as Peter says here, we'll be blessed in the end for, for doing good and not doing evil. So now we come to our second major point. We're to remember that Christ is our example in times of suffering. For Christ also suffered once for sins, the just for the unjust, that he may bring us to God, being put to death in the flesh, but made alive by the Spirit. So Jesus, our Lord and Master, suffered persecution. The apostles suffered persecution. Based upon that, it's pretty reasonable to not be shocked when we as believers suffer. But they did, and we will as well. Christ suffered not for himself, but notice for all mankind, the just and the unjust. And the purpose of Christ's suffering was so that he can bring us to God. I love that. Jesus said, if I'm lifted up, I will draw all men to myself. And so through the cross of Christ, he's able to bring us to God through his grace as he draws out to both the unjust and the just, all mankind, right, all sinners. Now the focus of this verse is not so much salvation, but the victory of Christ through his persecution. You see, while Christ suffered and died in the flesh, he was resurrected in glory. In the same way, we're to have that mindset. We're to remember that, that yes, we may suffer, and it looks like we're being defeated, but in the end, we're gonna be glorified with the Lord. We're gonna be victorious, and we're gonna stand with the Lord at his second coming. And so, you know, as you look at Christ on the cross, you think, he's dying. He's suffering in the flesh, but the Lord in the end said, hey, I, I know the end of the book, and I, I have a purpose and a plan for it. And the same thing, we have that hope in our life. Verse 19, by whom also he went and preached to the spirits in prison who formerly were disobedient when once the divine long-suffering waited in the days of Noah while the ark was being prepared in which a few, that is eight souls, were saved through water. 
So not only did Christ have victory in the end, but God used Christ's death for his glory. Jesus descended and proclaimed himself as the promised seed of the woman to all those who were involved in that wicked scheme during the days of Noah. We're told this in Ephesians. The Bible says that Christ who ascended first descended into the lower parts of the earth. And he led those captives from the captivity, those believers who died in the Old Testament who went into Hades, that place that was separated into two compartments, Abraham's bosom, and then Hades, a place of torment. When Christ descended, he, he led those believers who were in Abraham's bosom to heaven with him, right, after he um, you know, rose again from the dead. But also, we're told here that he went down and preached to those who were disobedient during this time. And so the, the souls could be um, those people who were disobedient in the sense of rejecting um, you know, Noah's message, or could re- refer to the demons um, as well. But either way, Christ didn't go down there to preach the gospel to them. I'm told that the word in Greek here is a different word than is used to preach the gospel. It means, it means that he made a proclamation to them, showing them that he was the promised seed of the woman and that he did overcome um, the scheme and the plan of Satan, that he was the promised uh, Messiah. Verse 21, there is also an antitype which now saves us, baptism, not the removal of the filth of the flesh, but the answer of good conscience toward God through the resurrection of Jesus Christ, who has gone into heaven and is at the right hand of God. Angels and authorities and powers have been made subject to him. So the ark and the water is a picture, is a type of the work that Jesus would do for the believer in salvation and then in his demonstration in baptism. Now, we all know this, but a lot of people try to use this verse to support baptism being essential for salvation. But we need to make sure that when we take a verse, and it's an obscure verse, we need to make sure that we interpret that verse in light of the rest of the Bible. And if you take this verse right here to refer to baptism for salvation, well then you got some problems, you gotta kinda chew on some other stuff. Can't just take this one little piece of meat right here, you gotta kinda, you you gotta look at all the other passages. And so Paul, for example, in 1 Corinthians 1.17, said, for Christ did not send me to baptize, but preach the gospel. So obviously, Paul didn't believe that baptism was a part of the gospel or even essential for it to be shared with the gospel. And also in the book of Acts, in chapter 10, when, Paul, uh, when Peter himself came into the house of Cornelius, we're told there that he began preaching, and as the people were listening to him, they believed in Christ, and the Holy Spirit came and indwelt them, and they spoke with other tongues, showing that, that they were born again. And after he saw that they were born again, he says, wow, these guys are born again just like us. Should we forbid them to be baptized? And so they took them down and they baptized them. And so God does not show partiality, right? You can't be saved before baptism and then require everybody else to be saved after baptism. So apparently people aren't saved through baptism. You're saved before um, baptism. You know, and, and so the Bible says you're saved by grace through faith alone, that not of yourself. It's the gift of God, not of works, lest anyone should boast. Well, in that case, well, what is Peter talking about here? Well, notice when Peter's talking about baptism, he was, he was not thinking about the outward. Notice, he, not the removal of the filth of the flesh, but he's thinking about the inward. It was the answer of good conscience towards God. Water baptism is always the outward symbol of the inward reality. So the answer of good conscience towards God means that uh, when you're baptized, you understand that God has already cleansed you from your sin and your guilt of sin. 
And so very simply, that's what, what Peter's saying. Now, as I said here, the main point of these verses is to show that while Christ suffered, God was able to bring victory. You know, Christ, yes, while he, while he did suffer, you know, the Lord had a plan and a purpose in it to draw us to God. You know, while he did suffer, yes, but he also descended and proclaimed himself to all those who are wicked and disobedient in the end. And yes, while he did suffer, he also ascended three days later, and now the angels and authorities and all powers have been subject to him. God is able to work all things together for good. And the same is true for you and I. As we suffer, we need to remember that Jesus is our example, not these people we see on TV, right? It's Jesus who's our example. It's the apostles and the prophets, their life, they are our example. They're the ones that we follow after. Jesus suffered, the apostles suffered. We, it shouldn't come to a shock if we suffer. But if we do, we're not without hope. God gives us other promises. God will help us to stand through it. God will give us the power to walk through it and to glorify him through it. So did you come here tonight to hear some promises? Well, then you got them. Maybe not the ones that you were looking for, though, but nevertheless, you heard the promises of God. But in those promises of God also comes the power of God to change you and to mold you into the image of Jesus. Jesus.